and welcome to MySecurity TV and our Tech and Sec Weekly. My name is Chris Coverage. I'm the Executive Editor and Director with MySecurity Media. And today we're joined by Dr. Nick Tate, the President of the Australian Computer Society. We're going to be looking at reform of Australia's electronic surveillance framework. It's a discussion paper from the Department of Home Affairs, looking at the Australian surveillance uh, frameworks, the legislative frameworks for interception. Uh, and under the Telecommunications Interception Act. And there's a whole range of uh, legislation that is being reviewed uh, for a new framework uh, following a, a, a review and a recommendation. The Australian Computer Society has come out and is calling on the Department of uh, Home Affairs to rethink its approach. And we're gonna be joined by Nick Tate now. Uh, Nick, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Chris. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. Wonderful. Um, Nick, I think you've the, the ACS, the Australian Computer Society, uh, most of our audience will know, but uh, the ACS has put a, a, a committee together. Was, it, was that committee uh, put together specifically to review this discussion paper, or do you have a standing uh, committee that might be looking at this type of thing? No, we, we have a standing committee on uh, cybersecurity. In fact, what we have is below our main board, if you like, we have a technical advisory board and that, uh, and that has a range of standing committees dealing with AI, uh, blockchain, cybersecurity. And uh, this particular uh, response, of course, has been from the cybersecurity committee. Uh, any reason why I went into cybersecurity in particular, uh, looking at the interception or did other committees look at this or yeah what, what was the decision making to put it into cyber security in particular well the, our technical board which looks over looks across all of those technical committees would have taken the view that this was the best committee with the right people on it got it to to look at this particular response so when we do a response to any you know government labor which there are many and uh, uh, across a whole range of different areas in it and technology then we try and find the right group or groups, if necessary, to work on this. And that was the group we thought was best in this case. Well, look, I appreciate the ACS coming up uh, and providing this submission, and at least getting it out there in terms of a media release to say, look, uh, we do have some, well, not so much, well, it seems to be some reservations about the approach that the discussion paper had. And uh, IMEX, uh, state and federal law enforcement, and have used uh, the, the sort of the TI Act uh, in the past as well, and quite ranging powers. Uh, there seems to be quite some divide, but again, I come in from a policing mindset of, you know, uh, uh, there's a technology challenge for them right now as well, isn't it? In terms of what they want, what will really help them, their resources are limited, their skill sets are limited and difficult to maintain. Maybe let's start with an overview, then we can dive down into particular areas what was your general thoughts uh, on the challenges that they have? Do you appreciate the challenges that law enforcement has? And then some of the limitations uh, that they're going to have to put up with or, or face into the future. Absolutely. And I think, well, first, I might just say, if, uh, if you don't mind, that actually we're, we're, we applaud the government really for, for doing this review. It, it's been time. It's a good time to do a critical review and, and, coming out and seeking the comments from industry and associations is excellent. And I think we yeah. should honestly congratulate the government for doing that. The challenge we have is that, you know, there's a general requirement here to balance the needs of, of law enforcement, the needs of privacy, uh, the, the requirements of individual customers. It's a balance. It, 
no absolute there's no absolute answer that we can put pull out of the air and say here we are this is you know we we've come up with it here's the formula we've got the answer we are going to do that it's got to be a balance between all these competing requirements and i think what we're trying to do in giving a response here is to say we're not convinced that the government has entirely got the balance right and there are some areas and we haven't commented on every areas in the discussion paper but there are some areas where we've commented on where we think the government could do better in getting the balance right and we've tried to offer suggestions on how that might be made better well i think what i was going to go is the it's reviewing the ti act so the Tele telecommunications interception and access act uh, the surveillance devices act uh, there's also parts of the australian security intelligence organization act uh, the telecommunications act and then there's uh, sort of other discrete parts of the commonwealth and state and territory laws uh, and this looks like it's going to try and encapsulate it across Commonwealth and state legislation and bring them all online. So good luck with that, I say, because, uh, you know, aligning all of this legislation. Uh, what was a bit of a standout for you from this? You've made uh, one, two, three, four, five, uh, six or seven kind of specific points. You've left some blank in your submission and we yeah. will have a, a link in. Uh, this is on the Australian Security Magazine for our particular channel. Uh, the main one was uh, the, the, a couple of standouts for me, and I might get you to comment. One was uh, identifying individuals that use an application. Uh, so that often takes it away from the old way that I, I recall is, you know, you'd either have a, a device or a phone number, anyone using that particular device or phone number, you could intercept or you tended to have it on the person and uh, then sort of track them around. Uh, the interception of an application and then identifying everybody who uses that application is quite an, a, an interesting one, a new one that I haven't seen before. So I think we suggested that isn't a good idea. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. To, yeah, and I think it's, it's our submission to government that actually uh, there are voices, I think, calling to do that and there have been. Uh, and honestly, we don't think that's a good idea. It, it can capture very large amounts of non-related information. And I've seen some commentary you will have seen this as well, I'm sure, uh, that says, oh, well, we need to capture very large amounts of information so we can use electronic means to trawl through it. Well, you know, the US tried some of that a while ago, you may recall. And, and overall, it, it actually just, in, our, in my view, and I think uh, the ACS view as well, would uh, reduce trust in yep. the ability of our law enforcement agencies to properly enforce what is understandably the right thing to do. We, we understand as I think everybody understands, in a modern society, you have to have government surveillance activity. That let's you know, let's be quite open and honest about yep. that. So the question is, how do you do it in such a way that people feel that it's been properly operated, it generates trust, and everybody wants to try and cooperate to get the result, which I think we all want, which is to get people who should who are doing things which they should not be doing uh, found out. And I think I think we think that going just um, targeting an application. It's going too far in terms of the amount of information. And that's it, one of the recommendations we've come back. It, it comes to almost what the headline was, call a call out to stop uh, deputizing tech companies where they put the onus on, on the company it's, itself, where it's a technology provider or a platform, yeah. uh, for them to identify the users, to them uh, to identify what might be privileged or sensitive information uh, and you've kind of turned it back around to say, look, this is all fine, but you do the you do the work, uh, you have the technical skills, 
and don't put the onus on business and industry to do that work for you. Again, from a, from a policing background, uh, that's how it's always really been. You know, you, you needs to be a bit of a public-private partnership in many ways, but I think this is where the challenge for law enforcement comes into play. They don't have the resources, they don't have the technical knowledge or skills, uh, but they have a a piece of paper which is a you know quite a a demand will produce uh, documentation or you will produce information, and it puts the onus on on industry. There's a do you think this has gone far enough uh, in terms of uh, that coercive power? Because uh, you're putting I think a lot anything of too far. I think if anything, if, without saying uh, uh, it too far, and, and I think yes, you're right. The ACS has, has said to the government, look, we, we do think you should stop deputising IT professionals and technology companies, particularly, you know, that the existing um, 2018 bill, I think that we've seen, allows, uh, requires, doesn't just allow, it requires that our, uh, Australian IT companies and professionals have to secretly assist in cracking things like electronic protections when called on to do so by agencies. Now, it's all very well, but how actually, what are the implications of that and how actually does that work? For example, um, imagine I'm in a 20-person team or even a 10-person team, it doesn't matter, and, and somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, you mustn't tell your bosses, but we want you yeah. to decrypt this or to do this. How are you supposed to, apart from lying, as a technology professional, yeah. how are you supposed to, to help the people when in those cases you're being told you mustn't tell anybody? You know, there's something a bit odd and a bit wrong about deputising people to do that. In addition, imagine you were a small company, startup, let's say, with only two or three people. How does that work that you get to do it without telling everybody? What does that do to the costs? I mean, you're when you're working on this, you're not working other things and, that your company is asking you to do. <clears throat> I that's where I was almost going before. Uh, again, uh, sort of the, the Crime Commission or ASIO Acts, they serve your notice to produce and you are then, then legally obliged and you'll break yeah. the law if you don't produce. Yes. And if it's an electronic document or whatever that piece of a record, and that could be an application and its user base, uh, it does put that onus on them. And that's kind of where I was going. Is there a divide here between interception uh, of communications and even this discussion paper points out that communication is, isn't even properly defined so what is communication there's a problem right there uh, and then the other one is the coercive nature of of that of that production of electronic document given the amount of data that we have these days where where do you see the line being drawn is is there do you think there's going to be a definitive line here? And is it well, something well, I, that can be... I, I don't know that there's a definitive line, Chris. I think yep. the point about this is it, it, all of these things need... It needs um, cooperation, give and take in all parties, and that's important. But at the same time, doing what we've just described to individuals puts them in an invidious position. Yep. And they come to their company's going to say, what were you doing? Oh, well, I can't tell you. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't... I don't think, unless there's an ability to tell more people than just the ones that are currently involved, I don't see how that works. But I, I think the other, the bigger thing we're talking about here, we're, we're skating around it in a way, not, not that we would, but we're skating around it here in a way that says, look, if law enforcement, and I'm thinking law enforcement, I presume ASIO as well, I'm not going to assume what skills ASIO does or doesn't have, 
but I'm what I'm assuming is if law enforcement wants to come in and get some of this information, I think rather than just saying to, to IT companies and IT professionals, you do it, there's going to have to be, I think there needs to be a lot more capability within the law enforcement organizations. And that's what we're saying in this thing. Honestly, if it's reasonable to do it, then that's fine. We're not arguing that there are good reasons to, to do surveillance or to do, um, that to do interception. But then, really, there needs to be more of an onus on the government agencies who want to do it. Now, I know, as you've just said, that government agencies are often saying, well, we don't have enough staff or we don't have the technical skills. And that's all of that is, I'm sure, true. I don't have absolute knowledge, but I can surmise that that would be true. Yep. But, you know, the answer would appear to me, I'm sorry, to be some greater investment, some more people and some more skills. And that would serve us all rather well, I think, if we wanted to really intercept it. It could be a window here because I know that uh, under the uh, cybersecurity strategy uh, 2021 or 2020, uh, you know, they are investing uh, a lot of money and they're looking at four or 500 new jobs in, in Department of Home Affairs and the Australian Cybersecurity Centre and ASD. Yep. So there potentially is a window, a gap uh, here between their current capabilities and what they need to uplift to. They are in an uplift uh, stream. Yep. Uh, if anything, when I first read that, it was uh, when I first read the headline, uh, I was thinking the ACS is saying, hey, you're stealing all the jobs from industry <laughs> and sucking them into government rather than the other way around. Um, well, the, well, you know, I think that, uh, that, that there's rather a shortage of people with yeah. cybersecurity skills at the moment. And, and this is contributing to it. So even when they do deputise uh, and because it's subject to a notice or a warrant, they're not they're not obliged to pay for those that time either, are they? They're not, not as far as I'm aware, because after all, if they did that, they would give away the fact that they were doing it. Correct. What do you do? Go to the accountant and the finance clerk and say, we'd like to, could you issue us an invoice, please, for this? <laughs> How many more people will know it? Most of the company by this point will have known it. No, it won't. Um, the other one you raised was uh, uh, corruption. Any corruption agencies tend to go through the law enforcement agencies, and then there's a there's requests that have been denied, frustrated and delayed. So even, again, I think that's a, a point that the framework itself, who has access to these coercive powers and the warrants, uh, also needs to be fixed at the government level first before they can start to implement this correctly, right? Well, I think, I think the answer is that in those cases, well, first of all, I think we should, I think we should probably acknowledge that we're not at the most optimal position of the, uh, of the intersection of federal and state law. We have nine yeah. <laughs> law, legal systems. During COVID as well. The federation yeah. is broken in a way. It, it is. And, and I think we can honestly, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with this if we say they don't work as well together as we'd all like them to do. <laughs> so, so you have that point. But in certainly, particularly in state anti-corruption agencies, if they have to go through other agencies, if they have to go through other agencies, and the people in those other agencies don't have sufficient knowledge to enable them to assess, or at least assess in a timely fashion, because there aren't enough of them, uh, assess the existing um, uh, requests, then you get to a position where the anti-corruption agencies, whoever they are, will, may not be able to get access to the information they want. And I don't think that's the real, um, you know, what was really intended with the legislation. I think it's intended that they should be able to get to it. And our, our proposal is really to know we ought to get on. And, and make sure that they have a more direct access. After all, it wastes time 
by going through why go through one of the other agencies yeah. make an agency to do so well that's i remember that even 15 20 years ago that that existed uh with the likes of asic not being able yeah. to access certain information as well um there's a couple of ways i wanted to go one is the consultation rather than just putting out a discussion paper do you think there's been enough discussion and consultation over the longer period of time uh, or do you think it's always tended to be one way uh, of government saying hey we're, we're coming up against this this sort of roadblock uh, in terms of our investigations we need to change legislation in the discussion paper there is I can't find it in front of me there's been some a thousand amendments uh, to the legislation over the last sort of 20 years and most of that has been over the last five years and they've just created a mess rather than consulting uh, and having an ongoing working group uh, that mixes between sort of the ACS and, and groups like the ACS that can guide and advise government appropriately. Do you think there's been enough consultation or is it just throwing out discussion papers and hoping uh, that maybe it flies under the radar and that the legislation can come through without too much pushback? Well, well, I think there are a lot of competing agencies in this area, yeah, right. as you imagine. I, I don't think there has been enough consultation, but there again, I, I'm not certain that on many issues, on governments of all persuasion and, and types and states and, and federal, there's always been as much consultation. I think it's difficult to consult um, where this is both state and federal law that we're often talking about, and it's the intersection between the two. However, having said all that, one of the things we've said in there, and you'll see that we've said in the response, is that the ACS often has members acting in this and in other IT related areas as uh, as expert witnesses, whether it's for the courts yeah. or for other uh, areas. And I think we're very we'd be very happy to help uh, to help with a discussion, an ongoing discussion with government on how this should act. Nobody, I don't think anyone in the ACS is suggesting that that, that nobody should be doing that. There should be no surveillance. We all accept that there yeah. has to be. Level of surveillance. What we're all trying to do is find the right way of doing it. Or the balance, yeah. And the balance. And I think it's unintended sometimes. I, I recall I once ran an ISP, <laughs> and and uh, and police, both um, state at both state and federal level, came to me to ask for information. Uh, reasonably, nothing wrong with that. And I had to say to them, "Well, do you have a warrant?" <laughs> and they said, "No." And I said, "Well, do you know?" How to ask me for this information you can ask under the warrant and you can ask under the telecommunications act but if you don't ask for me in the way ask me in the way that 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 you you need to in those circumstances i can be in trouble with the privacy act and so i'd rather not be in trouble could we agree that you'll come yeah. back to me with the appropriate way now there was nothing there's nothing against the individual officers doing the very best and absolutely doing a great job and doing their very best but they just haven't been as trained as well as they could have done uh, in this area. And I think that's all part of how we can help, not only collaborating um, with the government by saying what's sensible, what's not sensible, what works, what doesn't work from our experience, but how should you go about getting the right trained and skilled workforce? What does it look like? How could we help in that? Yeah. Look, I can't agree more. I mean, that's a red flag for me when you are getting information. It's, it's almost lazy police work, but it's also, lazy police governance in in not providing the the officer training there it is a challenge for them and i think it also throws out how embedded technology has become in policing and law enforcement because they can't 
this includes the officer on the beat, really, at the, at the end of the day. It's not just the agencies themselves at a higher level. Uh, and understanding how that warrant system and how to ask for information, because it brings me to the next uh, point uh, in terms of surveillance devices, video, you know, and uh, most of my experience with, with policing, even current currently, uh, police go out and get video, they get the CCTV footage and the like with no warrant. Uh, so, you know, that uh, that chain of evidence can often be challenged uh, and lost as well. Just to clarify what I said before, the TIA Act has been amended more than 100 times right. uh, over the past 15 years. Most of that was the last uh, five years. And there's a thousand pages of legislation containing more than 35 different warrants and authorizations. Now, that's that's another red flag. How are you supposed to train police when there's 35 warrant types as well? So. I don't think uh, the policeman on the beat is going to be across. <laughs> I'm sorry. However well we train them, chance. I don't think they're going to be across them. No, not a chance. Um, but the other point that was raised is the this covers the surveillance devices and also video. So that's where video comes into play, video conferencing uh, also. The says here the framework is silent on what agency might do with the collected surveillance data. We'll come back to that. Uh, I just lost my point, but let, let's talk about video and video surveillance and video conferencing. Uh, there was quite some concerns around that as well. Well, yes, I think uh, we, we've all we all know about the traditional uh, tapping into telephones. Obviously, very few of those anymore, but tapping into audio calls. I mean, COVID alone has ensured that the that yeah. much business and much activity is conducted on one of probably three or four different video conferencing platforms. And so the question is, is that there's, there's not really very clear who should collect what and, yeah. and who's able to, what surveillance you're able to do on any of those. And I think um, the thing about, the first thing to do is to get clarity. What, what are you meant to do with it? What can be achieved, you know, from interception point of view and what's allowed to be provided? Uh, did you see, I don't know whether you saw what we mentioned, I think the definition, because uh, they refer they refer in the paper to the UK definitions on some of these things, which is fine on telecommunications and so on. Um, and it's good to look at what others do, always good to look at what others do. But I think the UK one, which was basically anything that's not systems data, <laughs> anything that's systems data is not con content, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So uh, the whole thing about video would be completely difficult to work out what is it that that we that we're able to to store what can you actually legitimately ask for i think the technology has changed again rapidly since the this act has been in place and we ought to be clear on what all of these are and i think we've given some other uh, other examples there so so for example uh, um if you're a diabetic type 1 diabetic and you have an insulin pump some people do of course um, is the data on that part of a, a legitimate request for storage? I have no idea. If it's I'm being asking. communicated, then I would imagine it can be intercepted and it becomes yeah. relevant. Yes, uh, I think so. But it, the, there's some in clarity about some of those. What's the communication? You know. So I think what we're identifying here is this, this needs an awful. This needs an update. You know, child technology has changed rapidly. That, that's not a surprise, is it? Uh, and and as a result, there's a lot of things that we need to update. I'm I'm wearing a I won't give the brand name, of course, but I'm wearing a uh, 
a device which collects how many steps I walk. Although I don't know how interesting that would honestly be to anyone in terms of surveillance, there are other things that it no doubt collects about me. Uh, are they included in our discussion on surveillance? And well, so the, I think there's, there's some really good discussion points, and that's what we're saying. We actually need to be clear about that. And the other, the other key part with all of that in mind is uh, there's a question here. How could the framework best account for emerging technologies such as AI and information derived from quantum computing? Uh, good luck, because we talk about the black box of AI where how can you... Uh, there's a lot of things happen in machine learning and AI that can't be explained. Um, Whereas there's that, that conflict between potential legislation which says you must yeah. uh, identify or you must uh, produce certain information. And if you can't, well, then maybe that, that could be an out, but still uh, they could be coercive in the way that they apply that legislation uh, to get what they want. Uh, and quantum computing, as the ACS points out, uh, issues are likely to be an emerging factor that, ha that this legislation may be too early to capture. So they're going to have to put a line on this, I think, at some point. Uh, the use of quantum technologies and subsequent usefulness of evidence collection and analysis techniques are too early to usefully define. Uh, the biggest challenge will be collecting and preserving evidence in a reliable manner. Uh, and one, I mentioned that chain of evidence uh, yeah. and, and the like, able to uh, understand how that's working. And most, if you look at AI and uh, machine learning, a lot of it is being uh, applied on the network. You know, the networks are so big and carrying carrying so much data, uh, you uh, you do sort of uh, run the risk of vacuuming up a lot more information than when you actually need. And again, policing cap on, they're not going to throw that data out. You're going to put that into a data lake and find out what else is there because you've got it under a warrant. So you've legally obtained it. Uh, and I think it's one of those uh, points there that can be uh, pointed out. Um, Nick, I suppose the the profiles, I suppose, of the committee, uh, because I think it's something that needs to be listened to. The ACS is a is sort of a primary uh, industry association uh, in this field, and I'd probably listen to more from one of the ACS is from maybe from Department of Home Affairs. All I understand right. the Home Affairs intention, but I understand the ACS uh, uh, skill set and like what likewise intention you know having a, a genuine intention here what's just some of the profile you don't have to mention names and the like maybe the number on the committee and uh they're all site all cyber security focused and then we might even dive into your other range of work as well uh, well there's about 10 on the committee the cyber security right. committee and and um you can see who they are because they're actually published on our website <laughs> <laughs> okay so we'll put we, uh, we like to be transparent Okay, well, that's good to know. Um, and most of them have got pictures up there as well. But uh, I mean, there are some very, I mean, there's a range of people from industry, from academia. Um, uh, one of them, and I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning it, Professor Bill Cayley, who, you know, is the father of a lot of cybersecurity yep. here in Australia. So, yes, we have some very competent, capable Things. people sitting yep. on, on that committee, and they give a view. Now, they won't all have exactly the same view. You'd be surprised if that number of people did. But 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 what we're trying to distill here is, is a reasonable response to the government's request for discussion by that committee. And as I, as you said before, um, you know, do we think we should should more should be done? Yes. We we do think it would be good to have an ongoing discussion uh, and to help uh, provide our own uh, feedback into that. And, and we're always happy to do that.
Yeah, I think one thing I'd like to see, if they're going to pro progress with something like that, and given the amount of amendments that have been made, say, in the TIA Act, is if they can guarantee that there's going to be cohesion across the states and the legislative framework first, rather than one state or Commonwealth doing its own thing and then a state doing another, then it just gets messy straight away and we're probably wasting everybody's time. So I think if all agencies are in tune with this, then maybe that's, that could be a good basis to start from. Now, you're doing other work uh, similar to the ACS, but across Southeast Asia. We cover ASEAN and, uh, and Asia Pacific as well. What's your other basis of work, uh, Nick, and, and your other areas of interest? Well, I I'm, uh, have, in addition to this, the uh, I'm, a, I'm a CIO by background for a long time in, in, in banks in London and in universities in Australia, and I've worked uh, in banking, defence and so on. In, in Asia, I'm president of a group called the Southeast Asia Regional Computing Confederation, or CIARC, for short. It's much easier to say it that way. And we've been working uh, recently over the last couple of years with APEC, you know, the Asia Pacific Economic Community. So, um, and working with them on a project to look at how to, to uh, if you like, more closely define skills, IT, I'm talking about ICT skills, in a framework across our Asia Pacific. Uh, community and and we've been working mostly with the Sophia skills framework, but we've just been concluding a project with a with a big workshop with APEC as we work on defining this with a number of them. We had a, a steering committee of Australia, New Zealand, uh, Malaysia, uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, um, Chinese Taipei, and Sri Lanka. Who's not an APEC member, but it, uh, you know the, we were quite inclusive in yep. doing it, and we ended up choosing. Sophia is the framework to use as the basis. And we've been working to how to make sure that there's more mobility for IT professionals generally, including cybersecurity professionals across the Asia Pacific region. And so that's been skills and, and, uh, and professionalism are some of the key things that we in the ACS aspire to, CIARC also aspires to that. And I'm very passionate about how we, how we really get professionalism. I'm, I'm conscious that the ICT profession and, and the ICT industry, if I put it that way, hasn't always, which are different from the profession, but, but the ICT industry hasn't always delivered on all the projects that it, yeah. uh, that it should have done. And you know, it's about professionalism. And if it's about professionalism, we would very, we're very much in favor of professionalism, whether it's in IT generally, cybersecurity or any of the other um, uh, allied uh, IT skills. Um, that's what we're trying to, to get to a point of saying, how do we measure that? How do we get to the point where people really recognize that you need to have appropriately qualified professionals to develop projects, yeah. to and develop business? And you're right, it is getting that consistency, uh, Southeast Asia, Asia Pacific generally, but particularly Southeast Asia, there's a lot there that we can do uh, from Australia to engage as well. But getting that consistency, despite sort of the language challenges, uh, cultural differences. Uh, when we're talking about technology, it's sort of uh, culturally ignores that kind of thing. It's getting that consistency. Uh, and I think you're right. Um, we have a skill shortage here in, in Australia. You're seeing that as well, not just here in cybersecurity. We did a session with ISACA last week on privacy. Privacy professionals are in, in demand. Uh, and generally ICT professionals, you're finding it's been quite challenging here in Australia at the moment? Yes, absolutely. So in terms of Australia, yes, and, and the ACS does an annual 
with with Deloitte as an annual uh, response uh, review of the market called Digital Pulse, and we yeah. look at the um, ICT economy in Australia, and it's it, it's increasing. We've got a yeah. huge skills gap. We're we're producing across Australia about seven thousand IT graduates a year, ICT graduates a year, and you know, I think we need another 300,000 by 2026. Well, it doesn't need a, an advanced <laughs> degree in mathematics to work out that that's going to work. We're in a bit of, well, it even suggests that we're in a bit of spot of bother. And given what we were talking about with sort of the uh, law enforcement agencies and government agencies to also uplift and get those yeah. skills, the overall demand uh, is from everybody. If anything, it's going to be a bit of a limitation uh, on technology and uh, in the, the pace of growth, I think, is the technology might have that capability, but we might not have the people to implement it appropriately. So we might, it might be a natural slowdown, which might be a good thing uh, in some ways as well, just to get uh, things back on pace. Uh, but Dr. Nick Tate, I could talk to you all day. I've got about three other questions, but I'm conscious of time. Uh, and hopefully we can have you back. I think there's another different areas. The Digital Pulse is one we do follow as well. Uh, annually out of the ACS. So uh, I think we can potentially have you back from that. Uh, so Dr. Nick Tate, President of the Australian Computer Society, thank you so much today. Uh, reforming electronic surveillance, the ACS has put a call out to the Department of Home Affairs uh, to rethink their approach. And I would probably second that motion, although they are doing the right thing in putting a discussion paper out. We'll have the links in the show notes. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Nick, I do appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to be here. I'd be happy to chat again. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks again.